if you have your bulletin, look back at our confession. The confession that we read was the question, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? And then the answer is that out of the whole human race, from the beginning of, uh, from the beginning to the end of the world, the Son of God, by His Spirit and Word, gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself unto everlasting life a chosen communion and the unity of true faith. That's you and me and believers all around the world who have ever confessed uh, their trust, their hope, their faith in Christ, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member of this communion. So you'll notice that the first half of the answer deals with all of us. The first half of the answer is Jesus has gathered and he defends and he preserves a holy communion. And we call that the church because that's what the Bible calls it. And, and the idea is, so in the Old Testament, there was what was called the kahal, and in the New Testament, there's the ecclesia. Those are the same entities. They are the people of God. And the essence of them is that they are called out of the world. That is the essence. The people of God have been called out of the world for the purpose of being His treasured possession. And it's the only, and that treasured possession is what we call the church. It's the church universal. It's the Catholic church. And it includes believers in all times and all places um, at all times. And that's that group that Jesus said, I will build that. I have laid down my life for that. Uh, I came for the purpose of securing the church. Okay? We, we, I, I think we often... We think too individualistically about our Christianity, which is why, um, which is why maybe sometimes we're not as willing to commit to a local body of believers, which is why sometimes we, uh, we float from church to church easily, um, because we're not thinking. Look at the next question. What do you understand by the communion of the saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of the Lord Jesus Christ, are partakers with him and all his treasures and gifts. Okay? What the confession is saying is you and I, all believers, we're united to Jesus. He's our head. Right? Makes sense. He's building the church. The second part. Second, that each one, there's your individual, each of you, must feel himself bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully what? For the advantage and the welfare of himself. No. For the advantage and welfare of who? Other members. You see, historically, we, historically the confessions got this right. We exist not to come get our own bit of spirituality, our own bit of Jesus. We exist and we come and we worship because we're a part of a body, because we are good for one another, because you have gifts and talents and abilities that we as a body need to benefit from. 
And, and all of us together, you know, it's kind of like a cake mix. It, it's not going to work if, if part of it's left out. And so as you come, you participate in this body. That's just kind of thoughts off my head. Where are we headed this morning? Who are we? What are we doing at Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church? If you take your bulletin, you can look on the, I think it's, I don't know exactly how this goes together. It's maybe the inside page. It says, Welcome Guests at the top. And you'll notice that the second point is our vision. And here's our vision. Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church exists to make, equip, and deploy followers of Christ who love their neighbors, who love their families, their neighbors, and the world for the glory of God. Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church exists to make, some people kind of struggle with that. We're, it's awful presumptuous of us to make disciples. I don't know if that one, I'm kind of hearing myself over here. All right, there we go. Lake Oconee Pres exists to make, equip, and deploy followers of Christ who love their families, their neighbors, and the world to the glory of God. That's our purpose. That's our vision. What does that look like? How, what, are the, what are the building blocks that get us to fulfilling that purpose? What are the things that we, sort of the presuppositions, if you will, of our church that allow us to do what we believe we're called to do and be? That's what I want to talk about this morning. What are those founding principles? I'm going to talk about three of them. The first is authorship. The second is relationship. And the third one is discipleship. Authorship, relationship, discipleship. Let's talk about the first one, okay? The first one is, is authorship. And, and, and what, what we're driving at here, what we're getting, somewhat getting at is, what is it that draws us all together? What is common to us all, not just us, but to the world, to the people in the Lake Oconee area that we want to reach, um, that we want to know uh, the, we want them to know the, the love of Christ. What are those things that, that draw us together? Um, and this first one is, is authorship. That is Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. God created us, male and female. He created us, and then he breathed life into us. He formed us from the dust of the ground. He made us, Genesis tells us, he made us in his image. He made all of us, all of us in his image, which is why you and I can go to China, we can go to Taiwan, we can go to Singapore, we can go to Brazil, we can go to Chile, we can go to, you know, Russia, we can go to Norway, we can go all around the world. And guess what? If you can communicate, though they sound different, they may look different, they may dress differently, they may walk differently, they may live differently, they most certainly are going to eat differently, there's still commonality. We're still, somehow, we live the same way when you get down to the basics. And that's because God created us, because he put his imprint on us, because he, he has made us like himself. <laughs> terrible. 
I need, a, I need a, a mute button when I have to cough like that. So think of it like a, uh, think of it like a puzzle. All illustrations break down, but, but just try to stay with me. How many of you, and the puzzle came up this week in my family, and so it got me thinking about the, the puzzle. Um, you, you go to the store. See, I do puzzles anymore. I think you can do them like on your cell phone, which is really not any fun, I wouldn't think. But you go to the store and you look at puzzle. And what you look at is you look at a picture of the puzzle, what it's supposed to look like. And then you, you take that home and you open the box up and it's broken into a million. That beautiful picture is broken in the box into a million different pieces. And then you begin the process of putting that puzzle together. And so what do you normally do first? Normally you find all those edged pieces and you get the edge. And then you start filling in the gaps, okay? And when we're doing that, as you're filling in the gaps of that puzzle, you are looking at the you are looking at the original picture and you are working to make it look the same. In in this idea of authorship, C.S. Lewis and a number of other authors and, and people have identified there are, there are many kind of base level common things to each of us. And that what that allows is it allows for you and I to have connections both to one another and to people outside the world without having to think about it. Okay, so the the, the, the four that we're going to talk about are four that readily identified. Lewis identifies them. We're going to talk about the, what's called, what he calls and others have called the justice echo, the joy echo, the love echo, and I can't remember the fourth one right this second, but we'll get there. Okay? So the justice echo. Here is, there is this common sense that we all have as we work our way through life that there's a common justice. There's, there's just right and wrong. Are you with me? Um, you know this. Uh, go anywhere pretty much in the world and, and queue up, right? Get in the queue. Get in the line and then have somebody cut. What is the instant analysis when someone does that? Right or wrong? Wrong. And we all know it, right? You didn't wait here. You didn't queue up. How dare you come and take my place? Um, children instinctively know it, right? So, um, so you'll see children perhaps, you know, at the lunch table or something, and, and one of them will say, you know, um, hey, can you give me that? I gave you a piece of my orange. Now, what are they doing? They're saying, look, it's only right and fair. I gave you a piece of my orange. Now you have to give me something back. That's that sense of innate justice that's sort of wired into us. We understand, um, and, and we do that in, in a variety of ways. Here's what, here's what Lewis says about um, the justice echo. He says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe? Uh, what was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see what he's saying? He's saying, "Look, there's an ideal out here, and, and it's only because there is an ideal of what what is just and unjust that I can even begin to say that something is unjust, right?" 
And, and you and I instinctively know that in our hearts. And here's the thing. Everyone else does too. Everyone else has wired into them, if you will, as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, the law of God. Because they were created, they were stamped with the image of God. And so they know. Um, Paul says that everyone knows that God exists, and yet they, they, they uh, suppress that truth and unrighteousness. You see, that's the stamp that is on them that gives them, for instance, this justice echo. They understand right and wrong at its barest level. And, and the thing is, you can go pretty much anywhere in the world, and they get it. Um, we all seem to have this, this commonality that draws us together, and one of those is this justice echo. Here's the second one, the, the joy echo, the longing for joy echo. Our confession starts out in the Shorter Catechism, and it asks the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so way back in the 1600s, the Westminster Divines understood that, that this is common to us. We are wired for happiness. We are wired to be creatures who seek for joy, who look for happiness, and, and boy, don't we, don't we look for happiness. Absolutely. We're, we're on a constant search for it. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He describes where it comes from. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. You want to be warm, you must stand near a fire. If you want to be wet, you must get in the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that happens, uh, that has them. They are a great fountain of energy spurting up out of the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once separated for God, what can he do but wither and die. And so what Lewis was saying was, yes, joy, right? That is one of those things that we're, we're searching for, looking for, hoping for. And so as we come and are drawn into relationship with God, that is where that true joy and happiness is finally found in life. Otherwise, it's an endless per- pursuit. And so you go to a book like Ecclesiastes, and the author um, of Ecclesiastes understands that missing link. And what he says is, look, I can go through all of life. I can work under the sun. I can, I can do my work. I can do my play. I can have my relationships. But without God at the center of them all, it's all meaningless. It means nothing. Now, are you buying, are, are you buying the idea that we're all looking for happiness? I hope you are. Our founders got it, Right? What did they write into our founding documents? That every man, woman, boy, child, we all have the right, what? To life, liberty, and the pursuit of sadness. No. Happiness. Happiness because God wired it into us. And our founders were looking at the scriptures and they're looking at the history of man, understanding that we have this longing to be joyful and to be happy. It's not a crazy idea. Um, We're all going to pursue it. 
You and I are pursuing it. And here's the thing. The world around us is pursuing it. And you can go and you, you, you can read about people. Because typically we think happiness is found in, give me a couple. Money. Happiness is found in possessions. Happiness is found in spouses. Happiness is found in relationships. It can be, but only if the center core is the Lord Jesus himself. That's what gives the meaning. And and here's what actually happens, though. You get Jesus, and everything else will be thrown in. You go for everything else, and you get nothing. You end up completely kaput. That's why the Apostle Paul can look at believers, right? He can look at people in the midst of trial, and what does he say to them? Be what? Joyful. Huh? The life's falling apart. Be joyful in all things. That's how Paul puts it. And when we read that, we always go, well, you know, he, he was, um, that was hyperbole, and he didn't really mean all things. I mean, who could possibly be happy in the worst circumstances of life? No, actually, I think what Paul meant was, with Christ at that center, right? Knowing that you are right with the creator of the universe, knowing that allows you to experience joy and even the pains and trials of life. Here's the third one. The echo that they spoke of was to know, to to be known and to be loved. There is a, a, a person alive that doesn't crave hearing the words, I love you. Which is why the words are so powerful from John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Now, when John says world, he doesn't mean globe. He doesn't mean the big blue marble floating in space. He means people. God loved them, and so he sent his son into the world. Think of Jesus' admonition. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because love is built into us, this dynamic. John tells us in 1 John that God is what? Love. God is love because there's a trinity. And in the trinity, there is love between the parts of the trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In relationship. And you and I are called to love. It is an echo that that resonates from heaven. Because it began there, it originated with God himself, and he stamped it into us to love and to be loved. Listen to 1 John 4, 7 and 12. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. 
This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The love echo. It's there, it's real, and you and I know it is. We know it is because we seek it out all the time. We know it is because we know people around us that need to hear and know that they're loved. Maybe this morning you're here and you need to know that you're loved. And here's what the Bible tells us, that God loved you so much that he sent his son for you to die for you. And that is love. And we are called because of that that imprint that's put on us, because God is love, he stamped us for love to give and to receive. And here's the last one, the emptiness echo. There is this longing, this mystified thinking about the emptiness, the death, We talked about it a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Hebrews chapter 2. And one of the things that we noticed in Hebrews 2 was that the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus came, verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil himself, verse 15, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to what? The fear of death. You see, Jesus came to break that because we all have it, right? We all, it's common to us all. We, 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 we look out into the world. We, we know it when, when we hear of someone that dies young, okay? And there's that pain and, and, and we kind of wrestle through that emptiness, the emptiness of death, It's common to all of us. It is an echo that resonates in all of us. And it is something that the Bible tells us Jesus came to break. He came to break the fear of death because in him is the hope of life. You see, he replaces the fear of death with the hope of the life of the world to come, which is why Paul, when he talks about Jesus, he says things like, he's the first fruits of us from among the dead. Okay? And the first fruits, it's like, it's like that first tomato that usually hits about June 1st, maybe the end of May, depending on when you planted, that first tomato that comes, right? I haven't had a lot of those first tomatoes out of my garden because I usually kill it by the time one, one comes on. But, but that first tomato, what do we do in my house? BLTs, Right? Because it's just goodness. We know that those are going to keep coming. And Jesus is that kind of goodness to us. And he breaks the, he breaks the, the, the way. He, he gives us hope that there's more for us than meets the eye. And we trust that by faith. So that's the first part. Authorship. Listen, as a church, knowing those parts and pieces, knowing that that's the reality for us, and for the world outside, right? And so as you go to the world, guess what? You, they may not, 
You may be a Democrat, they may be a Republican, you may be a Republican, they may be a Democrat, you may be this, that, the other, and they may not be, but but you know what? You share in common with them the same author, the same God that made you, made them. And the same God that made you, made you, made you, made you. And you may not think you have anything in common, but the reality is when you get down to it, you have everything everything in common. And we're actually all asking the same questions and we have the same needs. And you know what that gives you? It gives you, it's an ace in the hole, frankly, right? Because they're not necessarily thinking that way, but you can be. And here's the second part. We'll go through these last two a little, a little quicker. The second one is relationship. You and I were made for real relationships and we know that. Um, it, it gets challenging, right, to to have a, a, a circle of friends, to have a circle of relationships, and then somehow to add into those new relationships. That's challenging for us. I was talking with someone this past week, and they had moved, and their friends were saying, "Well, aren't you gonna aren't you gonna miss us?" And they said, "Yeah, we're gonna miss you, but we're gonna make new friends." <laughs> um, and uh, and you know how, that's that's so very true. We have that opportunity, and you had that opportunity. As I look out here this morning, there's roughly a quarter of you were not here three years ago when I came here. At least a quarter of you. Um, roughly 75 new members over the last three years. You know what that means? You're a different congregation than you were three years ago. And, and if you're here and you've been here for 10 years, you haven't even realized it's like the frog in the kettle. Right? There's just people coming in, and occasionally you realize some people have left. But the congregation is changing, and there are new opportunities, new venues as a church. And we want to be creative in the way that we come together and the way that we pull and help encourage you to get together. Right? Um, and you all almost always sit in the same exact place, um, which makes it hard in church. So you have to go somewhere else in order to get that. Um, I know right where to look to see if you're here. I've got a little list <laughs> present. Um, but we were made for these relationships. So think about the story, okay? Think about the story of Scripture. God creates man. He falls. Then God moves, okay? And, and the first major move in Scripture is towards Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And you know, later in the Bible, in the book of James, Abraham is referred to as what? A friend of God. Hey, Relationships. God entered into a relationship. He made a, he made a relationship with Abraham. Now, it's a little bit different relationship. I get that. But he values them so much that he began and he initiated that relationship. And then he carries it on all the way through Scripture. And, and, and it really is a story of this relationship that God has with us. And then, so there's the, the horizontal, and then there are the vertical relationships that are going on, us with one another. You come to the, you come to the person of Jesus, right? You, you come to Jesus, and he is in the business of continuing that process of making the relationship both with God and with each other a reality, which is why Paul says that we become ministers of reconciliation with God 
and with each other. Because reconciling is bringing two parties which were formerly alienated or separated together. The chief picture of this in the Bible is Jew and Gentile, which is why Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul talks about this, and I think maybe in Jim's Sunday school class this morning, you all got a picture of the wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles at the temple. That wall was, and it literally was referred to as the wall of hostility, okay? Because Gentiles had to stay in the outer court of the temples. They couldn't go into the inner court because they were considered unclean. And so they stayed in the outer court, and the wall that separated the two was literally a wall that the Gentiles were angry at. It kept, think about it, inside was where they were meeting with God, and they were kept two spaces outside of that. And so there was a wall of hostility. And Paul says that when Jesus came in his death and his person, he broke that wall of hostility down, and he brought those two together. I want you to listen to this commentator talk about that. He says this. He says, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he has made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt for the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. And Paul says that Jesus broke down that wall of hostility. You and I live in a world of relationship. Let me encourage you. Let me challenge you. And listen, this is a, it's a challenge to me. Right? So I'm right there with you. But let me challenge you to to look and to think outside of your current sphere and to think about relationships that you can begin to build. Devise a plan. Let's, honey, or just me, let's I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to make these relationships a reality. Both in the church and outside of the church. Because Our purpose as a church does not get carried out if you and I aren't in the business of relationships. It will be nearly impossible for us to make, employ, uh, make, equip, and employ uh, followers of Christ who love their families, their neighbors, and the world for the glory of God if we don't have good relationships with each other. It's absolutely foundational. We will go no further than the relationships that we have. And so let me just encourage you. As I said, 75 new members in the last three years. We're a different congregation than we were three years ago. And we have to think about that as we go about creating community and relationships among us. Mark Deaver, pastor up in D.C., said this, We demonstrate to the world that we have been changed, not, pri- not primarily because we memorize Bible verses, pray before meals, 
tithe a portion of our income and listen to Christian radio stations, but because we increasingly show a willingness to put up with, to forgive, and to even love a bunch of fellow sinners in relationship. The greatest thing that you and I can do to show that Christ is building his church and that we are following him is to expand our relationship horizons. That's the second thing. The third thing is, the, and you can probably stack these on each other. I don't know how everyone think about it. But the third building block is discipleship. What does that mean? It's a big word. It means lots of different things to lots of different people. But here's the inescapable, inescapable reality. That is, the Bible and the New Testament particularly talk extensively about being disciples. A disciple, bottom line, is a follower of Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, if you're trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, however you want to wash that out, you are technically a disciple of Christ. The question is, are you a good, dis- a good disciple or a bad disciple? And, and, and what, what I mean by that is not goodness and badness in the, in the, in the God sense, but are you technically being and doing what is required of a disciple? And there are, there are numbers of things. Chief among them would be this, replacing your world, having your worldview, the worldview you carried into your Christian walk, having it replaced with the worldview of the Bible. Okay? That would baseline be what we do as a congregation. What we, do, what we are doing as a, as a church, our primary function is to walk with Christ, make disciples. But, and, and what that means then is, so think about it, equipping. Equipping, right? Changing the way we look at the world. Not looking at it as a me world, looking at it as a he world. Thinking about it, thinking about the world we live in biblically. So we do that in a number of ways. We teach the Bible on Sunday mornings, typically expositorily through passages. That's our regular diet here. We have Sunday school classes in which we're hitting a variety of subjects and topics in order to, what, continue that transformation of thinking that goes on in our hearts and minds. We meet together for prayer. We pray for our needs. We pray for uh, one another in in a variety of ways. We have Bible studies that meet together. We have home fellowship groups that gather together. Think about what they're doing. They're developing relationship. They're, they're maybe perhaps doing a, a study in which they're transforming their minds. They're renewing their minds after the mind of Christ. All right? Um, and then we have, um, and we haven't talked about this a whole lot, but currently we have four life-on-life missional discipleships that are meeting. These are groups that we started back in September and the process actually started a, over a year ago um, for us as a church to organically develop within us a, disciple, a discipleship ministry that, that has uh, a very serious focus. And so right now there are two women's groups and two women's groups meeting. You haven't heard a lot about it because we're, we're, um, because we're working just to make it organic, a part of life. Those will end in April and May, and they will start back up ne- next September and, and you may be approached about it, being a part of one of those groups. Lord willing, we'll have three women's and three men's. Um, and, and it looks slow and it, and it feels like a snail's pace. 
Um, but it's, uh, it's genuine, real discipleship at a kind of a subterranean level. But then we have lots of other discipleship opportunities where we are seeing the transformation of our minds happen um, in different ways. And, and that's what discipleship is all about. Look at the way Matthew, um, Matthew talks about it in Matthew 5, 21. So listen to how Jesus did it. Jesus went and he said, you have heard it said. Okay, what is he doing? He's taking the cultural norm. He's saying, look, this is the way you've been looking at the world. Let me tell you the truth about the world, right? So you've heard it said X, Y, and Z, but I'm telling you this is the reality, okay? What happens, you know, um, you've, said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. I'm telling you, if you have been angry in your heart, you've committed murder. See, Jesus was transforming their minds. He was driving the truth deeper into their lives. That's the idea. That's what discipleship is all about, is transformational for us. And that's what we want to be about as a church. I have no, I'm not ashamed of who we are as a congregation and what we're doing. It isn't what um, other churches might be doing, and that's okay. It's what we believe, and it's not just me. Your elders worked and formulated this vision statement for this past year. Um, That's who we are. And that's what we're about doing. We want to do it joyfully. We want to do it happily. Um, and, and my prayer is that you will engage fully in the process of disciple-making. You will, be, you will take seriously the authorship of the Lord, that God created you and your neighbor in his image, that you will be serious about developing, cultivating relationships in your life, both in the church and outside of the church, and then that you will be serious about the transformation of your mind to be a follower of Christ. That is my hope. That is my prayer. I hope if you're here that that's what you've signed on for. And if you've just been kind of nibbling around the edges, my prayer is that you will um, sense that calling in our church and that you will join us. And, um, and if you're not convinced, let me buy you lunch or breakfast or a dinner. And let me, uh, let me lay my case out further for you. It'll be on me, okay? But, uh, but that's my prayer, and I, and I hope that will be encouragement to you. And look, I'm going to tell you, I don't even know what he's thinking, but Marion's going to do the same thing next week, okay? So you're going to kind of get my take on where we're headed and what we're doing, and we're going to get Marion's, and his better line up with mine, or we're in big trouble. Um, it, it will, because uh, we're on the same page. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good to us, and we want to we first just say thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus.